Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is the restart of our Words of the Buddha Pali Canon and English Study Group, where we get together each Saturday to study the words of the Buddha from the Pali Canon in English. The Pali Canon is the original source text of Gautama Buddha's teachings. This is where the teachings have been passed down from generation to generation in the words of the Buddha. During his lifetime, he taught everything orally, and nothing was actually written down during his lifetime. People remembered his teachings, people recited his teachings, people were able to recall his teachings word for word for word. This was part of the training that people underwent during his lifetime, and it was a way to ensure the teachings got passed down from generation to generation. After the Buddha's death, there is conflicting time frames of when the teachings actually got written down. I've heard everything from shortly after his death all the way up until about two, three, four hundred years after his death that they were actually written down. And during that time frame that the teachings were remembered word for word for word. Because if you can imagine during the lifetime of a Buddha, there would have been countless people who had attained enlightenment through his teachings. And as part of the enlightened path, once the mind is enlightened, not only do you eliminate discontentedness, but the mind has a superb clarity, a superb amount of memory and recall. So they would have been able to remember his teachings word for word for word and pass those down for many generations. The most common time frame that I hear is about somewhere between two to three hundred years after his death that the teachings were actually written down. And the source text that we trace our lineage back to originates about 1300 years ago. So from the time of the Buddha's death, 2500 years ago, until the text that we actually source our teachings on, the Pali Canon, there was about 12 or 1300 years of time where the teachings were first remembered orally, eventually written down, and then kind of passed down all the way to the point where we now source our teachings back to this Pali Canon that is sourced back about 1300 years ago. And now those teachings with better technology of paper and ink and the things that we now have available to us are in a much better format to be able to be preserved for many generations. For a very long period of time, people thought that the Buddha actually spoke in Pali, and that's why we relate all of our teachings back to what we call the Pali Canon, because Pali is a language. It's a spoken language, but 
it's no longer a spoken language today. It's been pretty much lost and there's not very many people that understand it. And because it's no longer an active spoken language, not everybody agrees what one word means versus another word. There can be three, four, five, six different translations and interpretations of those individual words in Pali. And we thought that the Buddha spoke in Pali for a very long period of time. But recently, in the last few years, archaeologists have uncovered some source texts that predate the Pali canon that were in a language similar to Pali, but was a language prior to Pali. So they actually think the Buddha spoke in a derivative of Pali, not Pali directly. So this is some of the impermanence that's been happening over 2,500 years from the time of the Buddha's life until now that we now have access to teachings that have been translated from Pali into English. The way that you know whether or not the teachings that you're learning are the truth is that you should be able to independently confirm for yourself. Once you learn teachings, you should be able to independently confirm that those teachings are the truth through observing in life whether or not those teachings represent the truth. So for example, when you first learned about impermanence, you didn't have to believe that teaching. You were able to learn it and then look around the world and see if you could find anything that was permanent. And you were able to independently confirm that it was the truth. The same thing goes for the text that we're going to be studying in this program is that you should be able to read them, learn them, reflect on them. And then when you practice in daily life, you should be able to see the truth for yourself, independently verifying the teachings. And what these classes are about is for you to come to class and actually seek guidance to see if you're understanding the teachings well enough so that then you're able to independently verify the teachings in your own practice. And by you verifying the teachings in your own practice, you see the truth more and more clearly. This allows you to acquire wisdom. So the way that you sort out all of this impermanence through 2,500 years is through your practice. That's where when you see the condition of the mind improving, that you no longer experience anger and rage and hatred, all these discontent feelings start to slowly diminish where situations that once created certain frustrations or annoyance or anger or sadness, when those things are fading away and you're observing that the condition of the mind is improving, that's how you know you're learning and practicing the truth. So these books that we're going to be studying in this program, volume two through volume 13, which is this program, they are originally sourced from the Pali Canon that dates back 1300 years ago, we consider these to be the words of the Buddha. And there's been multiple people who have done translations over the years that were very thankful that they were able to do that. And then what I've done is I've updated these translations to make the understanding of the words of the Buddha a bit easier for people so that they would be more readily able to learn, reflect, and practice. And the way that you'll know that the teachings are the truth is once again, you'll be able to independently confirm the teachings for yourself and you'll be able to practice the teachings and see the condition of the mind is improving. The translations that you'll see in these books, they all come with a reference at the bottom of the chapter. This reference 
is similar to what you might have been exposed to in the Bible, for example. If you saw Psalms 23, 13 or Matthew 1, 14, you know exactly where that is. And you can go back to the original source and see all the different translations related to that particular chapter and verse. Well, the teachings in the Polycanon have references as well, but they're spread out over multiple books. There's not just one book like the Bible. So there's these references of AN 3.16 or MN you know, 4. whatever. These are references that you can put into Google and be able to go back to the original source because Google has pretty much all the different translations by different people out there. But if you went back to the original, original source, you could actually use that to be able to reference it. Because with the updated translations that I share, what these books are is they're an extraction of the polycanon. The actual polycanon itself is 45 volumes of very large, thick books, about five to six inches thick because the Buddha taught for 45 years. So there's 45 large books of teachings. And in these 45 volumes of books, there's oftentimes a lot of repetition. You can be reading for an hour or two, and it's essentially the same thing being repeated with slightly different words here or there. And it would probably take the average reader a good 10 years to probably go through the Pali Canon let alone actually understand it, reflect on it, and practice it. Because those 45 volumes of books, they're not organized in any particular way. The teachings aren't organized in the beginning, middle, or end. They're just kind of in all these different books. So what we've got here is we've got a series of 12 books that have consolidated the teachings, extracted them, and put them in a format that you can read in a relatively short period of time and glean the lesson that the Buddha was teaching. Because his discourses, just like when I teach for two hours or so, his discourses are very long. And in that discourse, he might be covering five, six, eight, ten different topics, and it's different topics on different things. So what these books are doing is collecting the teachings, extracting them, and organizing them in such a way that you can just kind of get one or two lessons, maybe a few more, out of each individual chapter so that you're not having to tackle this massive discourse from the Buddha. So this allows you to kind of bring the teachings down into a manageable format. If you're familiar with what a cliff note is, they have these books that are kind of cliff notes that kind of summarize or extract teachings out of a much larger book. That's essentially what we've got available to us here today. And what I've found is that these teachings organized in this way are very helpful because we've got one book about the natural law of gamma, for example. We've got one book about breathing mindfulness meditation, which are the consolidated teachings of the Buddha taken from these 45 volumes of books and little bits and pieces put into just one book. The same thing with the natural law of gamma, spread out over all these 45 books a team of people has gone through and extracted the most important teachings about gamma into one book. And then when we get to the, the realms of existence, for example, 45 volumes of books, a team of people went through and extracted the most important teachings and put them into one book. 
So we'll be able to go through as a group reading individually throughout the week the 10 chapters that we're all reading and then come together in this class in order to be able to get help and for you to seek guidance. In addition to the words of the Buddha in the reference that you can then look to see what the Buddha was maybe teaching before or after, because the certain chapter that you read, you might be, hmm, I wonder what the Buddha was talking about before this or after this. You can actually use that reference to go back and look at that. Well, in addition to those two things, you also have my explanations underneath of each chapter. This is how I would share, based on what the Buddha shared, this is how I would explain what he was teaching. And while my explanations are there, if you read the preface of these books, I encourage you not to rely solely on my explanations. The reason why is that as an individual practitioner who is learning and pursuing this path to enlightenment, you can't just believe what I say. Sure, you should read, you should understand, you should reflect what your teacher is sharing with you, but there may be some meaning that you can glean from that chapter beyond what I'm sharing. And I wouldn't be interested in you inhibiting or limiting your understanding of the words of the Buddha just based on what I say. I think that a wise practitioner would look at what I say, but would also form their own thoughts about what is it that the Buddha is actually sharing so that you can deepen your understanding of that chapter. So the way that these classes will potentially go as we go forward is I will start out the class with a brief meditation, a probably 10, 15, 20 minute meditation where all of us together will meditate and kind of prepare the mind for the class. This will help clear out any kind of clutter that you might have and really allow you to prepare the mind to absorb the teachings of the Buddha and retain those for longer periods of time. After the meditation, then we're going to study the 10 chapters from the book that we actually were studying. So this week, it's volume two, chapters one through 10. What I'll do is I'll have either myself or one of the students will volunteer to read the chapter. And then after we read the chapter, we will open up to any questions that you guys have related to that chapter. I can see these questions taking many different forms, but some of the forms of questions that you might ask are, I didn't understand this paragraph. I didn't understand this sentence. I didn't understand this word. I didn't understand this chapter at all. Can you just help me understand it better? Right? You could have that kind of thing going on where you just need some clarification on a word, a sentence, a paragraph, or the entire chapter as a whole. You might have had thoughts beyond what I wrote as explanations, and you might be interested to confirm whether the thoughts and your interpretation of the chapter is part of the path to enlightenment. Because it's one thing to have your own thoughts about the chapter, but if your own thoughts are opposite of the path to enlightenment of what would actually lead to liberation of mind, you would like to know that because you don't want to interpret something that the Buddha taught in a way that's actually going to hinder you or take you in an opposite direction or, or veering off the path. So a second type of question might be, David, here's kind of a way that I was thinking about this chapter. Uh, can you confirm whether this is something that I should be considering or thinking about or practicing 
as a way to move the mind closer to enlightenment. And then I'll be able to confirm that for you or help you shape your understanding of that chapter or think about some things or consider some things that you hadn't considered. A third type of question that I can see us talking about, which I think will result in a lot of benefit for you, is you know how do you apply this particular sentence or paragraph or chapter to your life? How can you glean beneficial results in applying this to your life practice? What should I be doing based on the words of the Buddha? What should I be doing on a daily basis? Or how do I apply this to this particular situation? Kind of some of the nuances that you might be interested in. Because the words of the Buddha, they're not necessarily black and white. There's this large gray area. And that's where having a teacher is very important, that you can come together with your teacher and with the community of practitioners, and we can discuss the teachings and ensure that you are thinking about and considering that wide gray area so that you can understand how to apply these teachings in your life. That's what it means to be a a practitioner, that you're not following the teachings, you're not following rules, You're not looking at what the Buddha said is right or wrong because he's not saying what is right or wrong. Instead, what you're doing is you're trying to inform the mind and you're trying to build this wisdom. You're trying to build this understanding, this better way of life so that as you move out into the world and you start interacting in the world, that you can recall that wisdom and apply it in a given situation to actually help you to resolve any kind of challenges that you're facing. And that's how you actually benefit from the words of the Buddha, is that you don't just follow them as rules, you don't think of them as training rules, but instead you think of it as guidance that's going to create an informed opinion, an informed view, an informed way of practice that gives you wisdom to make better and better decisions in your daily life. So this is how this program is kind of shaped up, is that the be a bit of meditation at the beginning. There'll be a covering of each chapter one by one and give you a chance to ask any questions that you like. And it can be one of those three types of questions or really any questions that you like at all. If you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put your question into the comment section. Our moderators will see that and be able to get your question asked and I will answer your question during the class. But where possible, I always encourage people for this program and the other programs that teach too to come into Zoom so that you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly because I think that's really important as opposed to the way that we teach the group learning program. Oftentimes, the class that I teach on Sunday and Wednesdays, there's a question and then there's an answer and then we kind of move on to the next thing. But when you're studying deeper like this, the words of the Buddha, you might have a question and then I might have a question for you in order to answer your question. Or you might have a question and then I answer it and then you have a follow-up question based on my answer so that you can get deeper into it. And then I give you the answer to that. And then you might have another follow-up question based on this discussion that we're having. So this isn't a lecture or a sermon. This is a discussion where students are essentially gathering around. If we were all in Chiang Mai, we would all be sitting on the floor on our meditation cushions in a circle. We would all be sitting there and talking and discussing, and we would be interacting with each other 
and I would be helping you to understand the words of the Buddha. And even though we're online, it's essentially the same thing. So for those of you guys that are in Facebook or YouTube, you're welcome to stay there or any of the other places that we broadcast this content to. But if you would really like to glean the most benefit out of this program, I would encourage you to log into Zoom each Saturday at the same time so that you can interact and ask questions and follow-up questions and follow-up questions if that's what's needed. So I would like to welcome all of you to the restart of this program because the way that we're progressing in these books over the course of 12 books doing 10 chapters a week, it'll take us about two years to go through all the different chapters. And of course, you're not gonna be able to attend live to every single class. That would be permanence and that's not possible. So these classes are recorded in Facebook and they're recorded on YouTube. I don't put them on the podcast because it tends to be a bit more advanced material and the podcast is really kind of an entry point for people and I don't typically put them on there. But if you miss a class for any reason, because impermanence is going to happen, you can go to our YouTube channel, you can come into Facebook, and you can replay the class based on your time schedule and when you have time in your life. The nice thing about attending live is that you can ask questions live and you can get help. But even during the week, if you're reading these chapters and we haven't even gotten to the class yet, if you have questions, you can ask those in the Facebook group or private message or schedule a personal guidance with me. Or after the class, if you're continuing to look at these chapters and you have more questions, you can ask in the Facebook group, send a private message or a uh, schedule a personal guidance session. So while there's this preparation of reading before class and there's this discussion during class, don't feel like your discussion of these chapters needs to stop right there because you can still be reflecting on these chapters, you can still be asking questions about them, and I would like to make sure you know that I'm open for you guys to ask questions at any time based on your studying of these chapters. So with all of that said, let me see what questions you guys have about how we're going to progress in the program and how we're going to continue. I would like to just open up to any of you guys in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can just ask your questions about the program itself by putting your comment into the comment section or by raising your hand electronically. Teacher David, we just want a clarification. Amina had asked this question. Are we still reviewing, are we still starting with a meditation first? We are. Each class is going to start with meditation. Today, we're not going to do meditation because I'm using the time in order to kind of introduce the program. but. Next Saturday, we will do meditation at the beginning of each class. It doesn't look like there are any other questions. Okay. So what I'm going to be doing then is I'm going to be switching over the live stream and I'm going to be switching over our Zoom so that I'm actually displaying on the screen the chapters in the book. And uh, you guys who are in Zoom, you should now be able to see the chapters in the book. You should be able to see the book. And if for some reason we ever start talking and I don't have it switched over that you guys can see the book, let me know because of impermanence, there's going to be cases where I am not displaying the book on the screen. So feel free to let me know if we're ever 
in the class and talking and the pages of the book aren't being displayed uh, because that's going to allow us to make sure that you guys can see the chapters. Then what we're going to be doing now, so considering that we've already in the future would have already been completed with our meditation, what I'm going to be doing is reading each chapter. I will start today reading chapter one and I will also read chapter two, but beyond that, I would like to invite all of you to volunteer. If you would like to read chapter three or four or five or six, and you're in Zoom, you can volunteer to read. And I think Johnny's already volunteered for chapter three, and you can put that into the comment section of which chapter you would like to read. And then as a class, what we'll do is we'll read the chapter first, and then we will discuss the chapter and ask any questions that you would like on that particular chapter. Because now with less chapters, we can go into each individual chapter a lot more detail. The first time I taught this program, we did about 20 to 40, 45 chapters a class. So we weren't able to discuss each individual chapter. But now the way that we're doing this, we'll be able to discuss each individual chapter in detail and at length because there's less content. So I would like to read this chapter for all of you guys and then as I'm reading this, uh, you can be thinking about your questions or if you've already prepared questions, you can be prepared to ask them once I'm finished reading. Or if you're not gonna ask your question live, if you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and you would like to start putting that into the comment section, you can put that into the comment section about chapter one and our moderators will see that. Once we're done with chapter one, we'll move on to chapter two and we'll do the same thing. We will progress through the book in the same way. So this first chapter, I'll read through it and then accept any questions that you guys have on this. We titled this one, Words Which Should Be Studied, Learned and Investigated in the Foremost Assembly. A foremost assembly means like the best or the, the most predominant, the well-learned assembly. And remember, the Buddha is already talking prior to this about something, and this has been extracted out of that. And then there's something he's talking about after this as well, but this is the part that we're looking at. The chapter reads, in what is the assembly trained in investigation, not in conceited talk? Here, in this kind of assembly, when those discourses are being recited, that are mere poetry composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by disciples. The monks are not interested to listen to them, do not lend an ear to them, or apply their minds to understand them. They do not think those teachings should be studied and learned. But when those discourses spoken by the Tathagata are being recited that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, connected with emptiness. The monks are interested to listen to them, lend an ear to them, and apply their minds to understand them. They think those teachings should be studied and learned. And having learned those teachings, they question each other about them and investigate them thoroughly, asking, how is this? What is the meaning of this? They disclose to others what is obscure and clarify what is unclear. 
and dispel their confusion about numerous misunderstandings. This is called the assembly trained in investigation, not in conceited talk. And what is the assembly trained in conceited talk, not in investigation? Here, in this kind of assembly, when those discourses are being spoken by the Tathagata, are being recited that are deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, connected with emptiness, the monks are not interested to listen to them, do not lend an ear to them, or apply their minds to understand them. They do not think those teachings should be studied and learned. But when those discourses are being recited that are mere poetry, composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by disciples. They are interested to listen to them, lend an ear to them, and apply their minds to understand them. They think those teachings should be studied and learned, and, having learned those teachings, they do not question each other about them or investigate them thoroughly, asking, How is this? What is the meaning of this? They do not disclose to others what is obscure and clarify what is unclear or dispel their confusion about numerous misunderstandings. This is called the assembly trained in conceited talk, not in investigation. These monks are the two kinds of assemblies. Of these two kinds of assemblies, the assembly trained in investigation not in conceited talk, is foremost. And here you can see the reference that all you would need to do is put this AN 2.46 into Google. You might need to add a Buddhism to the end of it because some companies might have a part number in their manufacturing plant named that. So that will make sure you get to the discourse. And then of course you've got my explanation underneath this to help you understand. So before we open up to questions, let me just share a few things for you. One thing that you can think of here when the Buddha says assembly, he's talking about a community of practitioners. So what is the community trained in investigation, investigating the teachings, not in conceited or arrogant or prideful talk? That's what he's talking about here. He's saying that those discourses that are just beautiful in words and phrases that are just easy on the ears, essentially. These are like poetry composed by poets. He's saying, you know, people that are really into investigating the teachings and not in conceited, arrogant talk, they wouldn't be interested in learning from words that are just mere poetry. But instead, they would be interested in learning the discourses spoken by the Tathagata. This is the Buddha. The Tathagata is, means the one who's discovered the truth. And when you learn the teachings from the Buddha, it's a lot of work to learn them, to reflect on them, to practice them. It's a lot of work to get rid of craving, desire, attachment. It's a lot of work to get rid of anger, hatred, ill will. It's a lot of work to get rid of ignorance, delusion, and confusion, that unknowing of true reality. So the Buddha's teachings here is he's sharing essentially that people that are in his community would be really interested to dig into the teachings, investigate them thoroughly. You know, how is this? 
what is the meaning of this? And they would disclose the things that are obscure and clarify things that are unclear, dispelling their confusion, right? This is essentially what we're doing in this class, is that we're not just interested in poetry and hearing, you know, calm, soothing words. Oh, we should all just be loving and kind and join hands and sing kumbaya and yeah that's all we need to do is just zone out and be on a cloud and the world will just be great no that's not the way to get to enlightenment is that you actually need to dig in you need to really investigate the teachings and that's what the buddha is saying here is that a community of people who are trained to investigate the teachings not just believe them but truly dig into them asking the meaning of what is this what is that Help me clarify this. Help me understand this. You know, dispelling any confusion. Not interested in arrogant speech or arrogant talk or prideful talk. Really interested in investigating the teachings. He's saying that's the kind of assembly that is foremost or the most ideal. But if all we're interested in is conceited talk or arrogance or prideful speech, and we're not interested in investigating teachings. We're just interested in hearing these beautiful words, you know, poetry and discourses that are very easy on the ears, that don't really require much investigation and don't really require to, to dig in. And then when questions are asked about, you know, what is this or what is that, not really able or willing to clarify what it is that's being taught that this other group that's interested in more poetry and teachings that are easy on the ears, they're not interested in dispelling their confusion about the misunderstanding. They're more interested in sounding arrogant or prideful and not interested in really rolling up the sleeves and digging into what are the actual teachings. So the Buddha very eloquently here talks about these different types of communities in a way that's using right speech. He's not degrading other communities. He's not talking bad about other teachers, but he's just kind of setting out for his students what kind of community should we be as practitioners? And he's saying, this is the kind of community, is investigating the teachings, disclosing what is obscure, clarifying what is unclear, dispelling any confusion about any misunderstandings because he knows that's what will lead to enlightenment. Because remember, during the lifetime of the Buddha, he wasn't the only one teaching. You would think that in a community where there's a Buddha, everybody must know he's a Buddha and everybody would want to learn from him. But in reality, when a Buddha arises in the world, there isn't any physical characteristics that people can see that this is a Buddha. A Buddha doesn't go around producing miracle upon miracle upon miracle in order to prove that they're a Buddha. Instead, they just invite people to come learn with them. They make themselves available so that others can get access. And then through somebody choosing to learn their teachings, as they slowly learn their teachings, they will gradually see that those teachings are leading to enlightenment. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, he was teaching and there were people that were part of his community, but there were other teachers that were teaching as well, claiming it was their teachings that lead to enlightenment. So the Buddha was amongst many other teachers. 
just like today, if a Buddha arose today, there's many people in the world who are teaching the path to enlightenment and claiming that what they're sharing is actually leading to enlightenment. So any Buddha who would arise today would be in and amongst a large population of people, all of whom are learning and practicing different things. And in order to get to enlightenment, a community of practitioners would need to be trained in investigation, investigating the teachings, not concerned about whether the words are so beautiful or sound like poetry, because this is just arrogance or conceit, as the Buddha's explaining here. So let's pause here, see what questions you guys have about chapter one, if any. And if you guys have questions, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. The moderators will see that and get your question asked. If you're in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any question that you'd like. And then once we're done, we'll move on to chapter two. Very more questions, teacher David. I just had a thought on this first chapter, this very first chapter, that it's um, very interesting that the Buddha would initiate this um, speaking in the Sangha by clearly distinguishing between what it is that the practitioner needs to do and that ultimately is to focus on themselves and their own self-investigation. So pointing it back to the practitioner themselves and sort of, you know, highlighting that this teaching is not about what's happening outside necessarily, it's what's happening with you and that word investigation. So I, I see that as a very poignant sort of start and it's not about the music and the noise that's happening outside. Um, it's really down to what you apply and what you are doing in your investigation process. I agree with all of that, Manal. Very well said. It looks like Miranda has her hand up. I'm not sure if you saw that. Yes, sir. Um, I want to double check the understanding because in my mind, there's a few, well, a couple of things going on. It seems like what's being said here is, first of all, the practitioner needs to be less concerned with like the bragging, prideful talk, anything like that and needs to be willing to actually do the work and investigate the teachings and practice them. And then also it seems like um, Gautama Buddha is saying it's better to have a teacher who teaches the teachings more plainly instead of making them sound like poetic words, like poetry. Is that correct? That's another aspect of this. Yeah, 100% agree with that, that anybody who's teaching these teachings shouldn't be interested in having their words be easy on the ears necessarily and sound like poetry, but instead delivering the discourses that are needed in order to truly understand the deep, deep meaning of the path to enlightenment. And we can simplify our words and we can bring it down to a common denominator and not using all these very big words and words that not everybody understands because that would be kind of like conceit or arrogance if we just, you know, rattle off a bunch of really big words because the goal of a teacher is to be understood, not to project arrogance and pride or ego into the world. So anybody who's sincerely teaching these teachings for the benefit of others 
should bring their discourses into language that a common person could understand and doesn't need these really big vocabulary. But instead, we can discover ways to deliver deep, meaningful teachings without using enormous words that people find difficult and a struggle to understand. I agree with that. One thing that I would like to add since we're on this chapter is you're going to see a convention that I use in these books that where we're talking about somebody else's teachings, you're going to see that I use a small t. So here in this particular uh, chapter, you can see where, you know, the monks aren't interested to listen to them. Do not lend an ear to them. This is talking about teachings of poetry. I use a small t because those are the teachings that don't lead to enlightenment. When we're talking about the Buddha's teachings that do lead to enlightenment, I use a big T. And that's how you know we're talking about the Buddhist teachings whenever you see a big T. So just to give you guys that heads up, if you were a little bit confused of why you saw some that had little T's and one some that have big T's, you'll see that convention used at any point where the Buddha is talking about somebody else's teachings. I use a small T and when he's talking about his own teachings, I'll use a big T. Any other questions on chapter one? Yes, Holly has a question. Could you give a modern day example of teachings that are mere poetry with beautiful words and phrases? And are we to be cautious of such teachings? Yes, you should be very cautious of poetry and teachings that are just meant to sound very soothing because in order to understand the path to enlightenment, I mean, you've got to really roll up your sleeves and get in there and really understand this path because we're describing the natural laws of existence and you can't explain that through poetry. Uh, This is one of the reasons why I don't read the Dhammapada really. The Dhammapada is considered to be part of the Pali Canon but it's a scholarly work that was created about 1,200 years after the Buddha, and it was a bunch of scholars that were attempting to kind of put the Buddha's words into verses and poetry. It's not really tangible, something you can really touch your, your hands on and actually see the truth of whether it's true or not, because it's just made to sound beautiful and easy on the ears. You can find plenty of people today that have certain podcasts or books or talk about teachings and you can tell that you know there's not really substance there that's what the buddha is talking about right here when he's talking about his teachings about deep in meaning world transcending connected with emptiness his words and his teachings have meaning there's this deep profound understanding that comes through with his teachings. There's real substance to his teachings. And the more that you get exposure to these books and you see the way that he talks, you'll see that substance more and more. Where someone who's teaching with mere poetry, there's not real substance there. The words sound beautiful. They sound interesting, but there's no substance there. You might think about like memes that float around on the internet claiming that they're the Buddha's words and they're really not. This is one of the ways that you can spot teachings that aren't his, that if it sounds like poetry, it's not his because he didn't speak that way. He spoke like a professor almost at a college 
in a PhD program. He's speaking in a way that is going to connect the meaning of what he's sharing to give you some teaching that you can independently take out into the world and discover that it's true or not. If it's just poetry, you can't really tell whether or not it's true or it's false. It just sounds beautiful. It's easy on the ears. The Buddhist teachings, when you're reading them, sometimes it really takes a while to wrap your mind around them. That's one of the ways that you know that it's the Buddhist teachings is that you really have to think through what he's actually sharing. So there's lots of examples of that in the world that you can probably come across or you have come across where it just sounds easy on the ears. But when you get done with listening to that particular teaching, you're just kind of like, what do I do with that? Okay, it sounded interesting. It sounded beautiful. But what do I do with that? How do I practice that to determine that it's the truth? And the Buddhist teachings you can do that with where someone who's speaking with mere poetry, you can't do that. Follow up from Holly. Are these teachings claiming to be Buddhist or are there teachings like like this that are not Buddhist? All the teachings that you see in this series of books are all from the Buddha. The teachings that the Buddha is talking about here that are poetry, they, during his lifetime, could have been from other teachers who weren't studying with the Buddha and they were just mere poetry and not studying with the Buddha. And the Buddha knew that those teachings don't lead to enlightenment. And this was kind of like his way of complimenting somebody, but at the same time saying that, yeah, their teachings aren't going to lead to enlightenment. So he's kind of complimenting them saying that, you know, their poetry, beautiful in words and phrases. So this is like a way to compliment somebody, but at the same time show that their teachings aren't going to lead to enlightenment. Another group of people that he could be talking about are people that learned his teachings and then went off and tried to kind of make them more like poetry and sound more beautiful because the Buddha talks in his teachings about people that attempted to steal his teachings and claim that they were their teachings. And of course, a Buddha can teach in a way that nobody else can do. So a Buddha is not concerned about somebody stealing their teachings because if somebody wants to take their teachings, it's like, okay, go ahead, you can have it. Like the Buddha would be interested in seeing his teachings move more and more into the world. He doesn't mind if other people use his teachings, but if somebody tries to change his teachings and make them sound like poetry and easy on the ears, now it might kind of resemble the Buddhist teachings, but it's not really getting to the point in the way that a Buddhist teachings would. So he could be talking about that group of people too. So it's all inclusive of anybody who's talking in a way that is just trying to create words that are easy on the ears rather than really delivering the discourses that are going to provide the truth that helps a practitioner acquire wisdom and leads to enlightenment. That's what a Buddhist teaching is the truth. And those truthful words that lead to liberation of the mind aren't always easily discussed and they're not going to sound like poetry and they're not necessarily easy on the ears. And a Buddha understands that. And their goal is not to have this conceited, arrogant, prideful speech, but instead deliver teachings that are deep, deep in meaning and really ensure that their 
connected with the student so that the student can then independently practice them and see the truth. A Buddha is not going to be interested in just sharing words that are easy on the ears. No more questions on Zoom for chapter one. Okay, so let's go into chapter two, and we'll do the same thing. This is a much shorter chapter, and then after this, I'll just accept volunteers of anybody who would like to read the chapters, and then we can discuss it afterwards. This chapter two is titled "One Who Points Out Treasure." He is addressing Ananda. Ananda is reported to be the Buddha's cousin, somebody who was a member of the royal family. A lot of the members of the royal family left the royal family and joined the Buddha, and it got to a point where his father actually came and kind of pleaded with him to stop accepting people from the royal family because he thought that the royal family was going to fall apart. So Ananda was reported to be kind of like his cousin and one of his very close students. So you'll see him. Addressing Ananda in various teachings, and it's also said that the words that we have, you know, it was Ananda who was still alive after the Buddha died, and some other, many other disciples as well. And Ananda is one of the people who is accredited for kind of ensuring that the Buddha's teachings continued after the death of the Buddha, because he remembered the teachings so well, kind of. Better than just about any other disciple that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha, Ananda was accredited for really being able to recite a lot of the teachings of the Buddha. So here, the Buddha is addressing Ananda. Ananda, I shall not treat you as the potter treats the raw, damp clay, repeatedly restraining you. I shall speak to you, Ananda, repeatedly guiding you of what to avoid. I shall speak to you, Ananda. The truly dedicated will stand the test. Regard him as one who points out treasure, the wise one who, seeing your thoughts, guides you of what to avoid. Stay with this sort of teacher, for the one who stays with a teacher of this sort, things get better, not worse. And there again, we've got the reference that you can see. What he was teaching before or after this, essentially, what the Buddha is talking about is how to select a teacher and how to receive guidance from a teacher. The Buddha goes into more detail about this in other chapters that you're going to see as we progress in this book series, but this is just a very brief one, because in order to take on students, a teacher would have to ensure that they have. No craving, anger, and ignorance that is hindering their ability to teach students. So, if a teacher has craving for material wealth, for example, that's going to stand in the way of them being able to help their students unaffected by their own craving. So, if there's a teacher who just is teaching for the sake of money, well, they may not share the guidance that they should with the student because they don't want to upset the student and. Hinder them from making money, for example. So this is one of the reasons why Buddhist teachers don't send a basket around, or they shouldn't send a basket around asking for money. They shouldn't put obligations on their students asking for offerings, but instead they just accept whatever is given. They don't have any expectation or obligation for acquiring things from their students, but instead, in my view, a teacher should just be willing to give 
and give and give and help their students being unaffected and not wanting anything from their students whatsoever. The only thing that a teacher should be interested in is helping their students to learn and practice this path unimpeded and unhindered by anything else whatsoever. Just one singular goal is to help students to learn, reflect, and practice. And in doing so, a teacher is going to have to spend their time, effort, energy, and resources in order to help their students because it's very challenging to get rid of craving anger and ignorance and students are going to stumble. They're going to fall. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to struggle. They're going to have difficulties. And a good teacher, in my view, would be patient, would be kind, but would also point out to students in areas where they need to improve. Rather than constantly restraining and holding back their students, a teacher should allow their students to make whatever decisions they're going to make. And then when the student comes to the teacher and asks for guidance, provide that guidance. But then as the relationship develops and the student truly deeply trusts their teacher, if they're open to guidance from the teacher in situations where they may not have otherwise asked for it, this can be really helpful because a teacher can actually observe the conduct of their students and some of the things that they're doing with their mind and so forth and can kind of give advice and speak to them, helping them and guiding them of what to avoid because the students might not necessarily always know what questions to ask. But if there's trust and there's a good relationship, a wise teacher patiently, lovingly, kindly, and compassionately stepping in and saying, Ananda, this is something you should consider. Let me speak to you about this. This is something that you should avoid. So a teacher that's doing that, a student who's willing to accept that guidance can really make a lot of progress. And that's where the Buddha is saying a truly dedicated student will stand the test because in an unenlightened mind, there's typically going to be conceit or arrogance or pride. There's going to be that personal existence view. There's going to be that ego that's in there. And if a teacher shares guidance with you of what to avoid and the ego kicks in, and you don't want to hear that teaching and you reject it and push it away, that's actually hindering you. The ego is standing in the way of getting this guidance from a teacher who's willing to take their time, effort, energy, and resources without any interest and expectation of gaining anything from you whatsoever to share guidance with you that is going to improve the condition of your mind and improve the condition of your life. And what the Buddha is talking about here when he says point out treasure, if you're speaking and your teacher notices that you're speaking a little bit harsh in some ways and they're able to point that out to you, that's the treasure. Or if they notice that sometimes you speak with frivolous speech or idle chatter and they're able to point that out to you and you're able to receive that guidance and accept that guidance, that's the treasure that if you are with a teacher who can point out those kind of things to you of what to avoid, then the Buddha is saying, stay with this sort of teacher because this type of teacher who's able to and willing to 
provide you guidance and advice to improve your life without an interest in receiving anything in return, things only get better, not worse, because they're willing to take that time, effort, energy, and resources to help you without expecting anything in return whatsoever. And they're also not restraining you and pulling you back and trying to constantly control you. But instead, a wise teacher would instead observe you in daily life. And then as they do, at certain times, they might sit down with you and speak to you and help you understand of what things to avoid and what things to actually cultivate in your practice. And that's what the Buddha is essentially getting to here. But let's open up to any questions that you guys have. Remember, just put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand electronically and get help. Looks like Miranda's raising her hand again. Um, in the rest of the Sutta, Gautama um, Buddha talked about uh, monks living in a group will have trouble uh, obtaining the pleasure of renunciation. Does this also apply to householders? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, there's another teaching where he talks about ordained practitioners not staying with household practitioners and getting so absorbed in their life that they have to be willing to live in seclusion sometimes, right? So that's for an ordained practitioner. But when we get to that teaching, the way that we can apply it in household life is that you should also take times in your life to go away on your own without your family, without your partner, without your children, and go on holiday for three days or a week or two days by yourself because that's really healthy for your mind. Whereas if you're always around people all the time, then you don't have that ability to look inward and have that inner eye to observe your mind. And there might be an attachment there to your home, to your partner, to your children that you don't see because you're just always around them. Whereas if you train the mind to go away sometimes, then this can be really helpful for you to see that you are truly alone in this world and that's okay. And you're going to be alone sometimes and there's sometimes where you're going to be with other people because of impermanence and that's okay. And that can really build confidence in the mind and help you to become more steady and stable that you don't always have to have somebody around you all the time. Yes, so... It sounds like that's something that householders should do from time to time. Absolutely. I agree. And then to double check the understanding of what you have here, it sounds also like a practitioner, a student, shouldn't allow ego to stand in the way of being corrected by a teacher. If a teacher is correcting a student, it's from a place of loving kindness and wanting to see them progress on a path. Be humble enough to just take the correction, reflect on it, learn from it, and follow the guidance that's given by the teacher. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. And that's why in order to be a teacher, a teacher can't try to force people to learn with them. It doesn't work. <laughs> you know, nobody likes to be forced into to something like that. And also, a teacher can't have expectations of their students. You know, they can't expect them to learn in a certain time frame. A teacher can't expect that all their students are going to be able to meditate for 30 minutes a session right away out of the box. A teacher can't expect that 
they teach their students right speech and they're going to instantly be able to practice right speech. A teacher shouldn't expect certain donations or offerings. A teacher shouldn't have any expectations of their students whatsoever. And that way, the pure loving kindness and compassion can be seen from the students that, wow, this guy or this girl truly doesn't want anything from me whatsoever. The only thing they're interested in is truly helping me. So that way, when the teacher shares guidance with you, it's stripped down and devoid of any expectation whatsoever. It's just purely to help, and that's it. And by ensuring that a teacher doesn't have any expectations of their students, then the students can see that loving kindness and compassion more clearly, and they'll be more willing to accept the guidance that is provided by the teacher. Okay, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Any questions on uh, chapter two? And we'll, if we're ready, we can go to Johnny for chapter three reading. Okay, perfect. So Johnny's gonna read this one for us. Well, I think Johnny will not be able to read chapter three. Uh, I can handle this. Okay. Rare that a Tathagata arises in the world. Monks, suppose that this great earth had become one mass of water, and a man would throw a harness with a single hole upon it. An easterly wind would drive it westward. A westerly wind would drive it eastward. A northerly wind would drive it southward. A southerly wind would drive it northward. There was a blind turtle which would come to the surface once every hundred years. What do you think, monks? Would that blind turtle coming to the surface once every hundred years insert its neck into that harness with a single hole? It would be rare, venerable seer, that the blind turtle coming to surface once every hundred years would insert its neck into that harness with a single hole. So too, monks, it is rare that one obtains the human state, rare that a Tathagata, an Arahanta, a perfectly enlightened one, arises in the world, rare that the teachings and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata shines in the world. You have obtained that human state, monks, a Tathagata, an Arahanta, a perfectly enlightened one has arisen in the world. The teachings and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata shines in the world. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. All right, perfect. Thank you, Bossum. So this teaching is the Buddha explaining how rare it is for someone to obtain the human state, first of all, because there's countless rebirths throughout all these different realms. And the human state is the most ideal state to be able to attain enlightenment. Even the heavenly realm, which is not permanent, 
is not ideal because those beings are only experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings and oftentimes are complacent to learn and practice to attain enlightenment. The lower realms of hell, animal realm, and afflicted spirits, they aren't able to attain enlightenment in those realms. So it's this perfect state of the human state, which is very rare. So to be in this human existence is an outstanding opportunity. And then he also talks about how rare it is for a Buddha, a Tathagata, to arise in the world. But here he was talking to his students. They had attained the human state and they lived during the lifetime of a Buddha, which is the best time to attain enlightenment. So not only is the human state the most ideal state to attain enlightenment, but during the lifetime of a Buddha, this is the most ideal time because there's an actual person there that has deep, 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 deep wisdom about the path to enlightenment. So this was just an ideal time to exist and, and exist in that region of the world. And the third component is it's very rare that the teachings and discipline shared by a Buddha shines in the world for the whole world to see and understand. So these three conditions make it ideal for somebody to attain enlightenment. And that's what he's essentially getting to, relating this story to how rare it is for a blind turtle coming up to the surface of the water once every 100 years. So if you can imagine this circle, you know, a few centimeters wide or a few inches wide, floating around on the surface of the earth, the whole earth is flooded with water. And this turtle comes up once every hundred years for a breath. The Buddha asked, you know, how likely do you think it is that that turtle is going to insert its neck into that hole? Well, it's extremely rare that that's going to happen. Even in a swimming pool, if you had a swimming pool with a circle and a turtle comes up every hundred years, it would be extremely rare, let alone for the whole surface of the earth. So the Buddha, he does this where he asks questions to his students and he gets them thinking, you know, what do you think, monks? Would that blind turtle coming to the surface once every hundred years insert its neck into that harness with a single hole? One of the conventions you'll see me using in these books is whenever the Buddha is talking, it's normal text. And when his students or somebody else is talking, it will be in quotes and it will be italicized. So his students reply back, it would be rare, venerable sir, right? You can see the politeness, not just from the students to the Buddha, but the Buddha to his students. He always talks to his students very polite, very kind, because he needs to model the teachings of right speech. He needs to practice what he teaches. So he very respectfully speaks to his students, so therefore his students speak very respectfully to him. It would be rare, venerable sir, that the blind turtle coming to the surface once every hundred years would insert its neck into that harness with a single yoke. And then that's where the Buddha explains, aha, and also, it's very rare that you've obtained the human state, that there is a Tathagata, an Arahant, and the teachings are shining in the world. But then he goes on, and this is common that you're going to see, he always points back to the Four Noble Truths, or he will point to the Eightfold Path, oftentimes. Here at the beginning of this book series, the chapters that I'm including, he's pointing to the Four Noble Truths. Whenever you see him say, 
an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness and so forth and so on. This is pointing to the Four Noble Truths because once a student learns, reflects, and practices the Four Noble Truths, when they see that they are the cause of their own discontentedness, this is the breakthrough. And once a student makes that breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths, everything else really cascades from there like dominoes. Without deeply understanding the Four Noble Truths and practicing those, seeing it as truth and wisdom, a student would never be able to attain enlightenment. So here in this chapter and many other chapters, the Buddha is pointing back to the Four Noble Truths, ensuring people know how important those are and making sure that they learn them and apply the effort to deeply understand them and deeply practice them. So that's what we've got here in this particular chapter. But let's see if there's any questions that you guys have. Ali asked, did the monk monks know what he was referring to himself when he said a perfectly enlightened one has arisen in the world? Surely, yes, because when he first started teaching, people didn't know that he was an actual Buddha because he just wandered out of the forest, came back to the area where he was originally studying with other people who their teachings actually didn't lead to enlightenment, and he performed a miracle for five students. And those five students were four of his classmates, and one of them was his old teacher, who claimed his teachings lead to enlightenment, but they didn't. So when the Buddha came back, these five aesthetics sat down when they saw this miracle that the Buddha performed and decided to start learning with him. The way that a Buddha starts teaching, and he had a 45-year career of teaching, when he delivered a discourse based on the universal truth of impermanence, I don't think it's possible that he recited the same teaching for all 45 years from the day that he started teaching until the day that he died. I think what we've got here is essentially what he came to eventually teach after 5, 10, 20 years. He refined his teachings more and more to make them more accurate and more concise and more precise. So he delivered a talk on the Four Noble Truths when he first came to those five aesthetics and his first five students. But what we actually see in these teachings, I think is what he was eventually teaching by the time he died, which he discovered the words that were really helping that penetrated the minds of the students and were really working. So those first five students, they were convinced enough through his teachings that yes, they decided to learn and practice his teachings and get on the path to enlightenment. But the words that he ultimately ended up using became more and more precise, I feel, as he probably continued in his teaching career. As he started teaching more and more precisely, his community of practitioners grew and grew and grew where more and more people started attaining enlightenment. And eventually, you know, there's 500, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people that all know that they've attained enlightenment because you, they can observe the condition of their mind is improving. So when he said in this particular teaching, we don't know if this was in year one or whether this was in year five or this was year 25, but within a few years, 10, 15 years, I'm sure there was hundreds of people who were attaining enlightenment. So he could deliver a discourse like this 
where people were already fairly enlightened and there were actually enlightened people that were already part of his community. And when he said, it's rare that a Tathagata, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one arises in the world, they would know that he was enlightened because his teachings were improving the condition of their mind. That's how they knew that he was enlightened because people were getting enlightened in their community and people were in the process of getting enlightened. They could feel their condition of their mind improving. So they knew that these teachings that he was delivering were surely leading to enlightenment because they could sense that and observe that for themselves. So they would have known what he was explaining here. Just to, again, double check the understanding of this, what um, Gautama Buddha was saying, the way that I'm understanding it, is that, number one, it's very, very rare to be born into a human body, into the human realm. Mm -hmm. And then it's even more rare that a Buddha is present in the world. That happens very, very rarely. Mm -hmm. And then it's even more rare to be a human while there's a Buddha actively living in the world. And then it's even more rare to add to that, that the teachings are, as he puts it, shining in the world, that the teachings are being spread throughout the world. So because of them being humans and able to learn directly from the Buddha that was in the world at the time, it was especially important for them to really make an effort to understand the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path because they weren't going to get that opportunity again for a very, very long time. Is that the correct understanding of this? Yeah, if ever get that opportunity again, right? Because it's yes. so, yes, so, so, so rare. So essentially what he's saying is understand how rare of a situation you're in and take advantage of this and really be sure you apply effort to understanding because you can be born human in the teachings of the Buddha like let's just say like 50 years after he died his teachings were still shining in the world but there was no longer a Buddha there to guide so closely and so directly so even just being human and having the teaching shining in the world, hey, that's a huge benefit. But having this other component of the actual Buddha existing, that was just super, super, super ideal. And pointing his students to say, hey, don't waste this opportunity is essentially what he's saying. But he's saying it in the positive, right? Because an enlightened being isn't going to go around and be like, hey, man, don't waste your opportunity. Like, Get off your butt. Stop being so lazy. Like, get in here and learn the Four Noble Truths. Come on, right? That's kind of like a disgruntled, unenlightened being. As an enlightened being, that's one of the things you guys will pick up as you read this is, how does an enlightened being talk? Well, what you see here is he's never disparaging anybody. He's never talking down to anybody. He's never degrading anybody. He's never insulting anybody. He's never disgruntled. He's always focusing on the positive. And that's what you can incorporate into your life. So if you notice that you're kind of being disgruntled or complaining or something like this, you're like, hey, I shouldn't speak that way. I need to kind of eliminate that from my practice and start to focus on the positive. And that's what an enlightened being is going to do. And you'll pick that up 
through reading the words of the Buddha more and more, you'll see how a truly enlightened Buddha actually speaks. And that will help you to develop your right speech. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Looks like we should move on to chapter four, Mano. Yes, Miranda, whenever you're ready. Okay. Perfectly enlightened ones in the past, future, or at present are all fully awakened to the four noble truths. Monks, whatever arhats, perfectly enlightened ones in the past, fully awakened to things as they really are, all fully awakened to the four noble truths as they really are. Whatever arahants, perfectly enlightened ones, in the future will fully awaken to things as they really are, all will fully awaken to the four noble truths as they really are. Whatever arahants, perfectly enlightened ones, at present, have fully awakened to things as they really are, all have fully awakened to the four noble truths as they really are. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Okay, great. Thank you, Miranda. So what the Buddha... Yeah, thank you. So what the Buddha is saying here is all Buddhas, all perfectly enlightened ones, in the past, so before him, in the future, the ones that are, or, or the one that is coming after the Buddha, and presently, meaning him, right, have all awakened to the Four Noble Truths. So any Buddha is going to deeply understand the Four Noble Truths. So therefore, you as a practitioner should also understand the Four Noble Truths. Uh, so that's really the crux of this. And I don't know that there's any other explanation that I would need to give, but you guys might have questions on this. Is there any questions that you guys have on this? It doesn't appear there are any questions. Okay, so let's go to number five. Is there any volunteers for this one, uh, Manal? I'll unmute Holly. Okay, perfect. The perfectly enlightened one. Monks, there are these four noble truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness, it is because he has fully awakened to these four truth, noble truths as they really are that the Tathagata is called the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Perfect. So once again, just really explaining the importance of, hey, be sure you learn the Four Noble Truths. This is why Volume 1, the book that I wrote, you know, Four Noble Truths is right up there up front. When we taught the group learning program, I teach the Four Noble Truths multiple times throughout, you know, I think maybe five, six, eight times that I make sure I touch on the Four Noble Truths and ensure that students deeply understand that because that's the breakthrough 
that you need in order to be able to put together all the rest of the path. So he's just once again pointing to how important this is. And remember, he would have been saying something before this and after this as well. And the other thing I was going to point out here is where he says, it is because he has a fully awakened to these four noble truths as they really are, right? As they really are is like being able to see it clearly, right? It's not just, yeah, I've read the four noble truths. I understand it. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like roll up the sleeves, really dig in, investigate, right? At the first chapter, really investigate and understand. So being able to see them as they really are clearly, right? And because the Buddha understands them very clearly as they really are, he ultimately made it to become an Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one. And you can progress through learning the Four Noble Truths as well, which is actually coming up in chapter seven. But let's see what questions you guys have on this one. And maybe not quite a question, just a clarification on a personal experience. I know the first time I read this, it didn't make any sense to me at all. <laughs> I was just like, I don't understand what this means. And then the more I read it and the more I listened to you teach about it over and over and over again, it started to sink in. Oh, yes, I understand what this means. But yet then, still months and months before my brain was able to really accept what it meant. So I think if you feel like that's why he had to teach it so many times and say it so many times, because it takes the human mind that is so unenlightened that it takes us that long to accept, to first understand and then accept and then be able to really put it into practice. I agree 100%, Holly. Any other confirmations you guys would like or any other questions you guys have on this chapter? There are no other thoughts or questions. Okay. Chapter 6. Encourage, settle, and establish for making the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths. Monks, those for whom you have compassion and who think you should be headed, whether friends or colleagues, relatives or kinsmen, these you should encourage, settle, and establish for making the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths as they really are. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness, those for whom you have compassion and who think you should be headed, whether friends or colleagues, relatives or kinsmen, these you should encourage, settle and establish for making the breakthrough to these four noble truths as they really are. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness, an effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness, an effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness, an effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Okay, so we've got a little bit of a slant here, right? Still, the Four Noble Truths are important, and that's what we're getting. But he's adding to this that if there's anybody in our life, friends or colleagues, relatives or kinsmen, that should heed your advice, that are willing to heed your advice, 
basically, are they open to your advice? Are they open to your guidance? Have they expressed an interest in understanding the Four Noble Truths? We don't go around and push and force and try to uh, beat a drum on the street corner and tell everyone they're going to be reborn into hell if they don't learn these teachings. But when people show an interest, when they're willing to and they're open to understanding, then the Buddha says, these are the people that you should encourage, settle, and establish for making the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths. And things that I've suggested in the past are like getting people gifts of books or maybe you invite them to join our group. There's like a little invite where you can invite people. And if they choose to join, they choose. If they don't, they don't. No big deal. Or other things like this where you see somebody struggling or having challenges, you might say, you know, there's some teachings that could really help you. If you're interested, I can share those with you if you like. And then you have to be prepared to not have any expectations that they're going to say, yes, sure. What are those teachings? Or they might say, no, I'm not interested. And you have to be unaffected either way. If they say, yes, I'd love to get those teachings. If you allow your mind to experience pleasant feelings, your craving desire attached. Therefore, in the future, when somebody says no, you're going to feel painful feelings. You're going to feel frustrated or irritated or annoyed. So you have to remain unaffected and in the middle that you can suggest, you can encourage, you can uh, see if there's an interest, you can invite people to a group, you can give a book. And you probably only want to do that once or twice for each person. And then if they don't step forward, then you just know, okay, Barbara is not interested and you just keep moving on. And this practice isn't about you going out and converting people to Buddhism. It's about you focusing on your own practice. That's where the real focal point of all of this is. But in your travels, as you have relationships, as you have people where the Buddha says, you know, those whom you have compassion, and of course, we should have compassion for all beings. But essentially, those who are close to you uh, that are going to be interested in learning, then help them along. There's another teaching where the Buddha talks about not hiding the teachings. This is like in volume 13, I think, when he talks about generosity. He talks about how we should be willing to generously share the teachings kind of as appropriate. So if you put that teaching together with this one, you should do it selectively when people are interested, but not forcing it and not trying to uh, push people into learning and practicing these teachings. So let's see what questions, if any, you guys have on this one. It doesn't appear there are any questions. Okay, so now there was this big buildup. This was like a movie, right? Building up to the climax of the Four Noble Truths. Okay, Mr. Buddha, you've kind of prepared us. Well, this is the way it's been organized based on the extracts, right? People kind of put these together to show you, okay, now here's the Four Noble Truths. So you guys have heard the Four Noble Truths the way that I teach it, if you've been in any of the classes that I teach, but this is how the Buddha teaches it, and it's much more detailed. I don't teach it this way in the group learning program on purpose because you need a better understanding and kind of gradually ease into it before you can learn this level of detail. But let's go through and learn it the way that the Buddha taught it because there's much more detail here than in the way that I've summarized it in the group learning program and in volume one. I'll just read this so that I can 
go through and teach it to you one by one. Monks, there are these four noble truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. In what, monks, is the noble truth of discontentedness? So if you remember in the book that I wrote in the classes that I teach, the first noble truth I just say, all beings that are unenlightened will experience discontentedness. Just simple, sweet, easy to understand. And prior to that, I always explain what discontentedness is. But here's the Buddha explaining what is discontentedness in terms of the way that the mind experiences it and, and kind of this existence. He talks about the five aggregates. And anybody who gets to enlightenment, you have to understand the five aggregates. So let's make sure you understand each individual aggregate. What an aggregate is, is it's like a collection or an assimilation of something. And the five aggregates are what makes a being a being. This is how we can determine that something is a living being if they have the five aggregates. So let me teach you what the five aggregates are and then we can see things that are living beings and we can see things that aren't living beings. So here's what he says. It should be said, the five aggregates subject to clinging, that is, the form aggregate subject to clinging, the feeling aggregate subject to clinging, the perception aggregate subject to clinging, the relational formations aggregate subject to clinging, the consciousness aggregate subject to clinging. This is called the noble truth of discontentedness. So the form aggregate, it's this physical body. It's the collection of elements that create this physical body. That's what we call the form aggregate. So any living being who is a living being would need to have this form aggregate. So human beings and animals have this form aggregate. The beings in the heavenly realm, the beings in afflicted spirits in hell, they don't have a form aggregate. They are formless. They don't have physical form. Okay, so the form aggregate is the physical form. Then there's this feeling aggregate, meaning feelings in the mind, the experiences that we have being produced by contact through the six sense bases. So we see something with our eye and then it produces a certain feeling, either pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. There's some feeling where you hear a sound and because of that contact, it's going to produce a certain feeling or an odor or a taste or a flavor or physical object on the surface of the skin, the body, or the mind, mental objects will certainly produce feelings. So there are certain experiences that we have through these six sense bases, which we're going to study more later in a future book. Through these six sense bases, we have contact and then we get feelings in the mind. That's one aggregate that determines that a being is a being. Then we have these perceptions. Perceptions are the way things seem to be or the way the mind believes things to be. So you see something or you observe something in the world. You don't know whether it's true or not. You just maybe believe it or it seems to be 
and then the mind creates a perception. So let's say, for example, you walk into a 7-Eleven and there's somebody dead on the floor with a big pool of blood and there's a man standing there with a gun in his hand. The perception is this man just killed that person, but that may or may not be true. That actually might be somebody who was on the scene the criminal who actually shot the person and killed him has already run and run away. But the perception is, I see a dead person on the floor, I see somebody with a gun in their hand, that must be the person who killed them, but not true. Maybe, right? So a perception is what seems to be true, right? That's a perception. Then there's volational formations or choices or decisions. This is something that a living being can do, is they can make decisions. A unliving being, like a car, a car can't make a decision for itself, or at least not now, (laughs) maybe in the future. But right now, it can't make a decision for itself, right? A car is just an inanimate object. A tree, for example, can't make a decision for itself. It can't decide to stand up, walk 100 meters, and replant itself. It can't do that. So a living being is going to have volitional formations. It's going to have choices and decisions. And then this last aggregate is the consciousness or the mind. A living being is going to have a consciousness or a mind or awareness, right? So form, physical form, feelings, perceptions, things seem to be a certain way, but you're not truly sure, decisions or volitional formations in the mind. So it's the form and the consciousness coming together that creates a living being. And then that living being has feelings, it has perceptions, and it has choices or volitional formations. This is what makes a living being a being. But what the Buddha is saying is discontentedness is clinging to any of that, holding on to it. So if we hold on to this physical form, Wanting this physical form to be a certain way. Oh, I'm too fat. Oh, I'm too skinny. I'm too dark. I'm too light. I don't like that bump. I don't like this hair. If you cling to this physical form or wanting to exist in this world, there's going to be discontentedness because you're clinging to this physical form. If you cling to your feelings, to the feelings that are produced in the mind, there's going to be discontentedness. Perceptions, if you cling or hold on to your perceptions, you might end up shooting that guy with the gun in his hand, thinking he's the murderer, when in reality you just killed the defender, right? So if you hold on and you cling to your perceptions of other people, judging other people, of the way you think they should be, or the way you believe they are, then the Buddha is saying this is discontentedness. Or if you cling to your decisions or your choices, I made a decision that I would like to go camping this weekend and I really want to go camping. My family wakes up in the morning. They don't want to go camping. They don't feel comfortable to go camping. They're not, they didn't get a good night's sleep. But if you cling to your decision, I want to go camping. I want to go camping. The Buddha is saying that's discontentedness. So the fifth one here is the consciousness or the mind. If you cling to that and what's in the mind, then the Buddha is saying that's going to be discontentedness. 
So now, in what, monks, is the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness? It is this craving which leads to renewed existence. So it's craving that is the fuel that leads to the next existence, the renewed existence. And he says this more clearly in another chapter, in a future chapter where he talks about craving is the fuel that leads to rebirth. But he says it here as well, where he says craving which leads to renewed existence is the cause of discontentedness. So if you're having craving or desire or attachment at the time of death, it's going to lead to renewed existence accompanied by excitement and desire. That excitement is the pleasant feelings and the desire is that craving desire attachment. Seeking excitement here and there. This is seeking pleasant feelings, seeking excitement, happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, seeking it here, seeking it there. I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this, right? That's going to cause discontentedness because the mind is seeking or craving pleasant feelings. That is craving for sensual pleasures. So craving through these six sense bases, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the physical body, and the mind. As long as the mind is craving through these six sense bases, that's what's causing discontentedness. It's craving pleasant feelings it's craving for these sensual pleasures. It has sensual desire. The mind is having this desire for pleasure through the senses. Craving for existence. I want to live. This is why people fear death, is they crave existence in this world. That's going to produce discontentedness. They're going to be afraid to die. Craving for extermination. This is craving to end your life. This is like suicide or assisted suicide, where someone's craving to actually die. They think the world is so miserable, they would like to die. And this is going to create discontentedness in the mind because a person either wants to exist in this world and holding on to this world so tightly, or they have the other side, which is I'm craving to get out of this world and I'm craving to end my life. So the mind is not in the middle. It's craving these sensual pleasures. This is called the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness? It is the remainderless fading away, meaning there is no more, what he's about to talk about, elimination of that same craving. So eliminating craving where there's no more remaining whatsoever. Remainderless fading away because it's going to gradually fade away. Craving isn't going to just immediately depart the mind. It's going to gradually fade away. The elimination of that same craving, that craving, desire, attachment, eliminating craving, desire, attachment is what eliminates discontentedness. The giving up and letting go of it. So once you give up and you let go of craving, desire, attachment, then there's freedom from it. Because as long as the mind wants to go camping really badly and other people don't want to go, the mind's going to be discontent because you want to bring everybody along with you. And until you give it up and you let it go or just choose to go by yourself, then you're going to be discontent. 
But when you let go of that craving, then you have freedom from it, non-reliance on it. This is called the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness? This is the fourth noble truth. It is this noble eightfold path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So he's laying out the whole path to end discontentedness 100%. These monks are the Four Noble Truths. And then he goes through the common statement, an effort should be made, right? To learn the Four Noble Truths. So the way that I teach this in the group learning program is all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness. The cause of discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment, wanting things to be permanent when things are impermanent. The elimination of discontentedness is the elimination of craving, desire, attachment. And the way leading to the complete elimination of discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. So I've kind of summarized it. But here you see the more in-depth version that was taught by the Buddha. So what questions, if any, do you guys have on this? David, I have a question on the aggregates. Um, we know that craving leads to rebirth. Uh, would you say that at the time of conception, the aggregates mind and form have already been established and that the remaining aggregates, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations are something that sort of present themselves later? It all gets created in the womb. Because even in the womb, we're making decisions to roll around, move around, you know, do things like that. So there's the egg and the sperm that comes together. And then if there's a consciousness available, the third thing, that third component, it comes together and that creates the embryo. And now we have a living being because there's form, there's feelings, there's perceptions, there's volitional formations and there's consciousness, all three of those things coming together. In the womb, even the six sense bases start to be created. Fetuses in the womb can actually sense through their six sense bases. Okay, thank you for clarifying that, because I was under the impression that perhaps the remaining three uh, aggregates that I mentioned were somehow developed, at, you know, developed or you know, even born later in uh, human beings' life. But as you clarify, these are all present at the time of conception or birth. Yeah, and this is why when a woman is pregnant, if she's meditating and she's peaceful and calm and she's talking very well and practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech and anybody that she's around, like her partner and stuff, the baby's picking up on all of that. You know, oftentimes when we see a baby inside a mother's stomach, we envision that stomach, that skin is being like concrete. But in reality, the baby's sensing the emotions of the mom, the voice of the mom, even the outside voices of what's around the baby, they can sense that. So it's really important when a person is pregnant that they practice these teachings really well because the child is absorbing all of that even inside the womb 
And when the baby comes out, they'll be much more calm, much more peaceful. The delivery will go much better. And you'll be able to kind of set in motion this peaceful, calm life of this new baby and growing up in an environment where things are peaceful and calm and there's more contentedness. Because if you have the opposite of that, where there's a lot of harshness and aggressiveness in the environment, even when they're in the womb, the baby grows up with that and their mind gets conditioned towards that. And then they start treating other people like that in the world too, potentially. So the more that we can practice these teachings as parents, even when the baby's in the womb, it will help the child to grow up and be able to practice these teachings as well. It doesn't appear there are any other questions. Okay, let's go to chapter eight. Do we have somebody who was volunteering for chapter eight? Sure, I'll go ahead and read that. Okay, let me pull it up here. There we go. Oh, this is an interesting one. (laughs) The two-eyed person. Monks, there are these three kinds of person found existing in the world. What three? The blind person, the one-eyed person, and the two-eyed person. And what monks is the blind person? Here some person lacks the kind of eye with which one can acquire wealth not yet acquired and increase wealth already acquired. And he also lacks the kind of eye with which one can know wholesome and unwholesome qualities, blameworthy and blameless qualities, inferior and superior qualities, dark and bright qualities with their counterparts. This is called the blind person. And what is the one-eyed person? Here some person has the kind of eye with which one can acquire wealth not yet acquired and increase wealth already acquired, but he lacks the kind of eye with which one can know wholesome and unwholesome qualities, blameworthy and blameless qualities, inferior and superior qualities, dark and bright qualities with their counterparts. This is called the one-eyed person. And what is the two-eyed person? Here some person has the kind of eye with which one can acquire wealth not yet acquired and increase wealth already acquired. And he has also has the kind of eye with which one can know wholesome and unwholesome qualities, blameworthy and blameless qualities, inferior and superior qualities, dark and bright qualities with their counterparts. This is called the two-eyed person. These monks are the three kinds of persons found existing in the world. And how monks does the monk have attentive eyes? Here a monk understands as it really is. This is discontentedness. A monk understands what, as it really is, this is the cause of discontentedness. A monk understands as it really is, this is the elimination of discontentedness. A monk understands as it really is, this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. It is in this way that a monk has attentive eyes. Okay, so here the Buddha is using the eyes to represent one eye of somebody being able to acquire wealth in another eye, someone being able to see kind of wholesome and unwholesome qualities. And he goes into more detail about that. And he talks about one person, you know, is blind. They can't make money and they can't see good, wholesome or unwholesome qualities. And this would be a blind person. A one-eyed person is someone who can just acquire wealth. And you might have run across people like this that are very wealthy, very well off, but they're not really able to understand wholesome and unwholesome qualities very well. And maybe they themselves are kind of a harsh person. Maybe they're even into a lot of unwholesome things, but yet they're able to generate wealth. 
but yet they lie, they have sexual misconduct, they do all these unwholesome things because they can't see how to do otherwise, right? So there's people like that in the world that can produce wealth, but they're into a lot of unwholesome things. And then the Buddha talks about this third person, which sounds pretty ideal, right? Like you're able to acquire wealth and you're able to see wholesome and unwholesome qualities. And this is a two-eyed person. But then he throws in the curveball here and he says, ah, but monks, a monk has attentive eyes. And this would be somebody who understands as it really is, seeing it very clearly, what are the Four Noble Truths and how to practice those is what he's saying. Any questions on this chapter? It doesn't appear we have any questions. Okay. One thing I'll add to this is, you know, you might be asking yourself, well, how do I really apply this to my life? Just know that it exists, right? Uh, There's nothing in here necessarily that's going to point you to eliminating discontentedness necessarily, other than the fact that once again, he's pointing to the Four Noble Truths, but he's just basically saying like, these are some of the qualities of a person. And you'll probably see this in your life. Maybe at different times you've had one or two eyes, or maybe you were blind, or maybe you live with someone who has one eye, who's really good at generating wealth, but they're not really good at discerning their own wholesome and unwholesome qualities. And just know that that's the Buddha confirming that, yeah, these are the type of people that you're going to see. And that's where you can go off and practice this and see that it's the truth. You don't have to just believe it. But in terms of eradicating discontentedness, there's not anything in here necessarily that you're going to use to eradicate your own discontentedness. But maybe perhaps choose to be with people that are have keen eyes or have attentive eyes, right? That would be the most ideal. Looks like uh, Nick's got a question. Go ahead, Nick. Hi, Teacher David. Um, No, I don't have a question. I was going to just volunteer for the uh, chapter nine. Perfect. Go for it. Wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome camaraderie. On one occasion, great king, I was living amongst the Sakins, where there is a town of the Sakins named Nagaraka. Then the monk Anada approached me, paid homage, respect to me, sat down to one side and said, Bible sir, this is half of the life. That is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome camaraderie. When this was said, Greek king, I told the monk Anada, not so Anada, not so Anada. This is the entire holy life, Anada, that is. Wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome camaraderie. When a monk has a wholesome friend, wholesome companion, and a wholesome comrade, it is predicted that he will develop and cultivate the noble eightfold path. Perfect. Okay. So you see here, once again, Ananda showing up, right? One of his close students, his cousin. And the Buddha is actually talking to a king here. Uh, who's looking for guidance because the Buddha used to teach all different types of people at all levels of society. And here he's letting the king know that at one time Ananda suggested that half of the holy life is to have wholesome friends, wholesome companions, and wholesome comrades. 
And the Buddha corrected Ananda and said, actually, this is the entire holy life. Because the Buddha is saying here, and he says in other places too, that essentially having wholesome people around you is going to influence your mind to practice and cultivate and develop this eightfold path, this path to enlightenment. Whereas if you're around people who are into unwholesome things and doing things in an unwholesome way, it's going to influence your mind negatively and kind of perhaps your influence to not practice the path as closely. So as you get onto this path, three months, six months, a year into it, there may be people in your life that you choose to move away from in terms of your relationship. And you don't have to go to them and tell them that you're no longer going to be their friend. Remain open with loving kindness and compassion, but you might just choose to kind of continue walking and maybe move away where you're not spending as much time with them. And then as you're making new friends, what I would suggest is that you look for someone who's practicing these good wholesome teachings and not necessarily considering themselves Buddhists, but these good wholesome teachings, because they're the natural laws of existence, show up and lots of people understand that it's unwholesome to kill, that it's unwholesome to steal, that it's unwholesome to have sexual misconduct, that it's unwholesome to to lie, it's unwholesome to have substances that cause heedlessness. So if you're going to make friends and they're into any of those five things, then their decisions to be involved in those five things, it's going to smear you. You're going to see that in later chapters. The Buddha talks about the snake that goes through feces and smears you. So if you associate with people who are into unwholesome things, it can smear you. So let me give an example. Let's say you uh, have a friend who sells cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine. Okay, this has been a childhood friend and you're just holding on and you're clinging because at one time you guys were really good friends is eight years old, 12 years old, but somewhere along the line they got into selling drugs, for example, but you're still hanging out with them. Well, what happens when you guys are going down the street together in a car, a police officer pulls you over and they drop their methamphetamine or cocaine under your seat in the driver's seat. And now when they do a search of the car, it's you that's going to jail, right? So if you associate with people who are into unwholesome things, you're going to get smeared with unwholesomeness. And it's not that we look down on people. It's not that we disparage people. We don't think of the person themselves as being bad or unwholesome. They're just making unwholesome decisions. And looking at their decisions, their decisions to either kill, steal, have sexual misconduct, lie, or take substances that cause heedlessness, it's going to produce unwholesome results for them. Therefore, if you associate with those types of people, it's going to cause unwholesome results for you not their choice to be into drugs or their choice to have sexual misconduct, but it's your choice to associate with those people. That's your gamma because your choice, your result, your cause, your effect, or your action, your result, the result of your decisions. So the result of your decision to associate with wholesome friends, wholesome companions, and wholesome comrades is that you're going to have a mind that is influenced more to practice the full path and move closer to enlightenment. And that's what the Buddha is teaching here. So any questions on this one? It doesn't appear that we have any questions. 
Okay, so the last chapter, which is along the same lines, would anybody like to read this one? Uh, there are no volunteers, so if you'd like, I can read it, Teacher David. Sure. Uh, the entire holy life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship. And how Ananda is a monk who has wholesome friend, a wholesome companion, a wholesome comrade, develop and cultivate the noble eightfold path. Here, Ananda, a monk develops right view, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination, maturing and release. He develops right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, which is based upon seclusion, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, maturing and release. It is this way. Ananda, what a monk has who has a wholesome friend a wholesome companion, a wholesome comrade, develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path. By the following method too, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship by relying upon me as a wholesome friend. Ananda, beings subject to birth are freed from birth. Being subject to aging are freed from aging. Being subject to illness are freed from illness. Being subject to death or freed from death. Being subject to sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair or freed from sorrow, grief, pain, pleasure, displeasure, and despair. By this method, Ananda may be understood how the entire holy life is wholesome friendship, wholesome companionship, wholesome comradeship. Okay, this is very similar to the previous one, but a little bit more elaboration. This one is talking about the same thing, wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, and then goes into a little bit of detail here about the Eightfold Path, which I can share with you guys. So when he talks about uh, developing right view and all these other steps based upon seclusion, it's important that you find time, like we were talking about, to be alone. This isn't always the case. I remember growing up as children, we were kind of laughed at if we went to the mall by ourselves or went to the movies by yourself, or like when I went to college, if you ate in the dining hall by yourself, people kind of considered you a loser, that you didn't have any friends. But in reality, that alone time is really important, and you can't allow what other people say to impact your good, wholesome practice. So finding seclusion in different parts of your day for a few hours is wise, or like we were talking about, you know, for a few days or a week or two, going traveling by yourself, this can train the mind to be comfortable by itself. And that's really helpful. The Buddha also talks about maturing and release. What he's talking about here is as you practice this Eightfold Path and you start training in the deeper teachings and you're starting to release things like the 10 fetters and other craving, desire, attachments, there's certain periods of time that the mind can get so developed that you actually feel the release of the actual craving. When the mind has a lot of pollution, a lot of craving, anger, and ignorance, you're not going to necessarily feel it. But as your mind develops more and more mindfulness or awareness of mind, there are certain craving, desire, attachments that you can become aware of and you can focus on them and you can work to release them and you can actually feel it in the body and in the mind when it actually releases. 
And this is quite interesting when you feel this. You can feel it actually leave the mind. So you might notice that as you progress along in your practice. Then he talks about here later, he talks about by practicing the Eightfold Path that beings are freed from birth. Okay, This is really helpful because if you've ever been exposed to any Buddhist teachings that people say are Buddhist teachings, some people say the goal of the Buddhist path is to be reborn. And that's the goal, is to not get enlightenment in this life, make sure you're reborn and come back and help people later. That's not what the Buddha actually taught. You can see here in many other places where he talks about attaining enlightenment is to get free from birth and to eliminate rebirth. Get free from aging, because if you're not born, then you're not going to get old because you weren't born. And you're also freed from illness or sickness because if there's not birth, there's not going to be aging, there's not going to be sickness, and then there's also not going to be death as well. And as part of that, a mind that's liberated and has attained enlightenment, they've basically, what they've done is they've eliminated discontentedness. Here's the Buddha just kind of summarizing discontentedness a little bit where he talks about it as being freed from sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. So once the mind is liberated, as part of this eightfold path, which he discusses, through learning and practicing that path, but also ensuring that you have wholesome friends, then the mind gets to a point where you eliminate discontentedness, and having done so, you will have eliminated birth, aging, illness, and death. And that's the ultimate goal of the path. And that will become clearer and clearer as you see chapter after chapter after chapter of the Buddha talking about this in different ways. Any questions on this last chapter for today? Yes, teacher. A question uh, related to chapter seven on Facebook from Rastislav. He asks saying, may I ask, if form aggregate is actual human form, does it mean each time we will be reborn, let's say as human, we are building brand new form aggregate? Yes, every time there's a rebirth, it's a brand new form aggregate and all the other aggregates as well. It's a brand new mind as well. Even though we call it the cycle of rebirth, that's what people call it there's really nothing that's actually being reborn. It's completely new. The best way to actually think about it is the cycle of new existence because there's a new existence every time. So it's a new form aggregate and it's also a new consciousness or a new mind. But in that new mind, there can oftentimes be residual memories from previous lives. So residual memories and cravings from other lives will transfer into the new consciousness, but it's a completely new form and a completely new consciousness every existence. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. Okay, and no, no questions on chapter 10 either? It doesn't appear there are any questions, no. Okay. Well, I'll just end today's class by uh, thanking all of you guys for joining. Uh, we decided to change up the format a little bit where in the previous Pali Canon in English program, we had many more chapters than this. We had 
20 to 45 chapters and basically we would do our meditation and I would just say, what questions do you have? And then, you know, we would end up talking about maybe six or eight or 10 of the chapters here and there. We didn't talk about them in too much level of depth. Sometimes we did, maybe one or two, but not too many. But with this lesser number of chapters, we can go into deep detail in each individual chapter, which seems to be like it's going to be a lot more helpful. And I've added this component where you can read and volunteer to read. I think this will be a really nice thing for all of us to interact more because that's really what we would experience if we were all living in the same town or the same city. We would all be interacting with each other a lot more. So here we can do that online by having you guys volunteer. So if you guys would like to log in a little bit early for each session, if you can, it's up to you, and you would like to just put into the comment section of Zoom, like I'll take chapter one or I'll take chapter two or I'll take chapter three, that would be wonderful. And just know that there might be certain situations where I decide to do the chapter like I did in chapter seven because I just know that it'll work out better if I read it. But just be open to that, that even though you're asking to read a certain chapter, it might not happen. So don't be clinging to it. Don't be craving it. Just if you could volunteer and then if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. No big deal. But as we progress through our program here, we'll cover each chapter one by one like this. And I think it'll lean towards a very thorough discussion of investigating the teaching. So I appreciate all of you guys who chose to volunteer. I really appreciate the moderators for taking their time to help. Thank you guys for reading the chapters this week and going through and actually investigating the teachings on your own. This week coming up on next Saturday, we're going to do the next 10 chapters. So chapter 11 through chapter 20. And just take your time. You've got seven days. So maybe read one or two chapters a day. And if that only takes you five minutes or 10 minutes, then that gives you 24 hours to reflect on it and really soak it into the mind and really think about it. And I have a feeling Miranda might have came to class with some questions prepared, which I think is really wise, because if you've been thinking throughout the week and a a question pops into your mind, that really creates some nice discussion in the class. If you guys have different questions that come up and we can all talk about the different questions that you guys have as you explore these on your own in an independent study, but then we kind of come together as a study group and we're studying these as a group and gleaning the benefit of this investigation that the Buddha talked about. We're not here for poetry. We're not here to make every last little word sound so soothing and beautiful as poets, but instead we're interested in rolling up the sleeves, investigating discovering what is unclear, helping to remove any confusion or misunderstandings and uh, figure out what words you need to understand and how to actually apply this to your life so that you can get the real benefit of practicing these teachings. And the more you study with the words of the Buddha, you'll see that this path just gets more and more clear each day, each moment, and just continue with your meditation as you always do. And if you're participating in the group learning program at the same time, that's fine as well. So on tomorrow, we're going to be doing chapter 23, which is studying the symbolism and the imagery, reminders of the teachings through imagery. So we'll be doing that tomorrow in our group learning program. And then on Wednesday, we'll be doing loving kindness meditation as a group. 
So we'll see you either next Saturday or perhaps on Sunday and Wednesday in the group learning program. Have a lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.